Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, open it up to Luke chapter 16 and beginning in verse 19 this morning. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. Thank you, praise team, for sharing with us in worship this morning. Just think about two years ago when we were in the chapel, there was about 10 of us using a broken iPhone and a broken keyboard, and here we are, here you are. Praise the Lord for what he has done. We continue this week in the series that we've been in the past few weeks and months on the parables of Jesus. He tells us these earthly stories that have kingdom, eternal realities. We've seen about the parable of the lost sheep, how Jesus, the good shepherd, goes after the one, even leaving the 99. We've seen the parable of the tenants, how Jesus forgives in a way that no one else will, but he also expects that same forgiveness that we have received from him to be distributed. Freely we have received, freely we must give. Last Sunday we talked about the parable of the talents, how Jesus gives each of us time and talent and treasure, and the measure of our life is not how much we produce, but what we've done with what God has given us. And today we continue with a parable that isn't actually a parable because Jesus specifically mentions someone's name. But I think it's important that we consider it in this series as we consider the eternal rest of God and the eternal consequences of life apart from God. Look with me in Luke 16 and verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted, and you are in anguish. King James says, Thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm, a great gulf has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Here we're given a story of two men familiar to many of us who have any knowledge of the Bible. A popular story, if not a popular result, we're presented with a rich man. He's clothed in purple, the royal color of its day, and fine linen. He feasts sumptuously every day. If he was Brother Jerry, he would eat at Freddy's in the morning, and then he would go to lunch pail as well. I mean, he would have it all together. He, he ate where he wanted to eat. He did what he wanted to do, and right outside of his gate was a poor man by the name of Lazarus covered with sores 
who desired to be fed at this rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came, and they licked his sores. Every single day, this rich man, eating what he wanted to eat, in plain sight of another man who was starving. Both of them die because no amount of resources can stop death, and instantly their life statuses reverse. The poor man dies, and immediately he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died, is buried, and in Hades, another word for death, sometimes used for hell, being in torment, lifts up his eyes, sees Abraham afar off, and Lazarus at his side, and hears these eternal words. Now he, Lazarus, is comforted, and thou, the rich man, art tormented. So comfort in this life, on some level, brings suffering in the next, while suffering in this life brings comfort in the next. Doesn't Jesus say as much in Mark 8, if you want to gain the world, you are going to lose your soul, but if you lose the world... You'll gain your soul. A few things that I believe Jesus would have us know. Number one, your net worth isn't your true worth. Now, let's be honest. There's a lot of things that wealth can do. Sometimes people will say money can't buy happiness, and yes, that's very true, but it can certainly solve a lot of short-term problems because wealthy people have problems too. They're just different kinds of problems. Most of them are not worried about their next meal. They're not worried about having a roof over their head. They're not worried about how they can afford health insurance or having to live paycheck to paycheck. And let's be clear, Scripture isn't against wealth. In fact, some of the wealthiest people in all the Bible God has used to further his kingdom work. I hope you all get rich and you all tithe and give to the offering. Get us out of debt, get a new building. Think about Job who gave his riches away, lost them, got them back. Think about Abraham, who was wealthy, but God gave him what he could not produce, and that was an heir. Joseph, who went from the pit to the palace all the way to the halls of Pharaoh because God blessed him. I think of David, who raised the funds for the temple, and Solomon, who built the temple, the one who was the the wealthiest man in all of, of history, some would say. The women who followed Jesus, many of whom had money, supported his ministry. Those who gave to support the missionary work of the Apostle Paul. It isn't money, but the love of money that is the root of all evil. And how easy it is to become ensnared by the trappings of wealth. So much so that Jesus will say it is actually easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but really, really difficult. Think of that rich young ruler who goes away sorrowful. He says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He looks good. He's lived right. He's kept the commandments. And Jesus says, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. And he walks away in sorrow because great were his possessions. This rich man lives his whole life in an effort to have the best food, to drive the best camel and donkey, to have the best house, and yet he loses it all. Now let me ask you this. Isn't the point of wealth 
at least in the way that we understand wealth, in a secular sense, to make a great name, to establish an inheritance for your family. So if I say Rothschilds, which is older for some of you, Rockefellers, you're thinking modern days, Gates, Musk, Buffett. Most of us know those names. And yet in eternity, we don't even know this rich man's name. He's nameless. But we do know Lazarus. And it's no coincidence that Father Abraham is the one that the rich man will eventually see because it is to Father Abraham that God says, I will make of thee a great name and a nation. See, life and eternity always go better when God does the name working, the name making. Here we see that your net worth isn't your true worth. We know that intellectually, but sometimes it needs to sink in our heart that if all you're after is money, you can't take any of that at the judgment. But the second thing is we have to consider judging Lazarus. Even in our own community of Bowling Green, Warren County, Kentucky, isn't it easy to write these kind of people off? They're at the intersections. They're outside the stores. They have signs. Some of them very good signs. Some of them with great stories and some of them very sympathetic. And what are we constantly tempted to do? To disbelieve or to look the other way? And you say, Barry, I have good reason for doing such a thing. I've given people money, and then I've seen them buying the things that cause them to be in these cycles of addiction five minutes later. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, would we not mistake Lazarus in this same boat? So easy to write people off, and yet here is Lazarus right outside the doorstep asking for food, asking for help, and he dies. And in heaven, nobody sees the rich man, but everybody sees Lazarus. Do you know what I believe the rich man's greatest sin is, apart from the obvious sin of unbelief? It's that he ignored the need that God placed right in front of him and the God who gave him the power to meet that need. So we see that your net worth isn't your true worth. We see this contrast of judgment between the rich man and Lazarus. But then I want us not to miss the urgency of now. You know, here's the reality. We don't like to talk about it, but Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. In fact, Robert W. Dale is said to have said, the only man I can listen to preaching on hell is D.L. Moody because I have never heard of him talking of it without breaking down and weeping. My pastor loved to talk about D.L. Moody, kept multiple biographies of his that I've got. C.S. Lewis said, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power. There's a well-known image that many of you may know. I don't know. Guys, do we have it on, on the screen? It is of the great thinker. And if you've seen this before, in art, it is one of the most well-known by an artist by the name of Rudin, but this was eventually not supposed to be the image. 
he was thinking about philosophy. So if you go into the great philosophical halls, you'll see this image. But it is actually the second image that he was supposed to be on top of. And the second image, go to the next image, guys, is the gates of hell. He never finished this work. It was supposed to be a great museum. Many were supposed to come and see it. But on top of the gates of hell was to be the thinker. He wasn't thinking about philosophical thought, at least in Rodin's mind. He was thinking about the consequences of eternity. And certainly the rich man in hell begins to ponder too. Wouldn't you? The fate of his whole family is on the line. We don't understand this great chasm that takes place between Abraham being seen and the the rich man being seen because as far as we know, there is no communication between heaven and hell. But the Lord gives us this divine window in and now we see the rich man crying out for help. You know, he isn't the only one crying out for help from being stuck. In 1925, a man by the name of Floyd Collins was exploring Mammoth Cave, and he got stuck. He was 55 feet from the surface when he got stuck. He had ice water dripping in his face. The rescuers came in. They diverted that water. They talked with him. They calmed him down, but they couldn't get him out. And so mentally and emotionally, he became become unglued there. He was stuck in that cave. He could see the light. He could see where he wanted to be. He could hear the voices. He could get food, but he was stuck and he couldn't get out. So he slowly began to have raving lunacies about everything from chicken sandwiches to angels in white chariots. It got in the newspapers and 10 thousand people came to see him. It became a spectacle. They sold hot dogs and sandwiches. It was a sideshow. And 17 days later, Floyd Collins died in that hole, able to see where he wanted to be, and yet not able to get there. C.S. Lewis said most people don't miss heaven by a mile. They miss it by an inch. They're right there. This rich man could see it. He just couldn't get to it. He looks up and he sees Father Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Now he knows his name. It says, send him down that he may dip just a drop of water so that he can cool my tongue. And he says, there's a great gulf fix, son. It can't happen is the response of Abraham. And the man says, if he can't do that, I have five brothers. Send him. Send someone that they may tell him not to go, for I am tormented in this place. And then the words from Abraham, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear my word, the one rise from the dead. So it is possible for a man to come to live a sinless life to die a sinless death, to raise to life again, and people still not believe. This is the great predicament of our age. Now, here's what we will try to do apologetically when we make defense for our faith. We will try to come up with every kind of excuse of why people should not be in hell or how we can excuse away hell. But the truth is, hell is just the place to where people ultimately get what they most want, which is away from the presence of God. I want you to think about it this way. If you're in a classroom and you decide 
to unfortunately take a swing at a teacher, you're going to get suspended for that. If you go outside that classroom and you're out of the school and you take a swing at a police officer, you're going to get arrested for that. If you go to a rally for a presidential candidate or the president of the United States and you try to take a swing at them, depending on where you're at, you may very well lose your life for that. It's the same action. It's just different consequences against whom the offense is. And brothers and sisters, when the offense is against God, it has ultimate eternal consequences. Listen to what one commentator said. Many of the words about hell found in the Bible are all straight from Jesus' lips. They're a loving warning to us. The reason Jesus talked about hell is because he does not want people to go there. The reason Jesus died was that so people wouldn't have to go there. The only way to get to hell is to trample over the cross of Jesus. That is the great motivator for our evangelism. So many people try to make their own versions of heaven and hell, what they imagine it would be, what they imagine it should not be. But the creator of the universe has done us all a great favor by telling us exactly what the two places are. One is the presence of with God forever. One is presence without God forever. And today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Scripture says God would not have any to perish, but all to come unto the knowledge of the truth. And when we repent and place our faith in him, he gives us the same status, the status as Lazarus because we're all just beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. And Jesus restores our image and he remembers our name a number of years ago, there was a book called Healing Grace that came out with how monarchs, specifically the Habsburgs, who were over the power in Austria for 600 years at the end of World War I, you remember their death helped spark World War I. But when the emperor, Franz Joseph I, died in Austria in 1916, his was the last imperial funeral. I mean, he had every extravagance possible planned out for years, bands playing, lighting of torches, all of these things going down the stairs, an iron door leading to the Habsburg family crypt. Behind the door is the cardinal archbishop. The officer in charge follows the ceremony, opens, established centuries before, so he cries out, open, who goes there is the cardinal's response, and they begin to give out all of this guy's titles. We bear the remains of his imperial and apostolic majesty, Franz Joseph I, by the grace of God, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, defender of the faith, prince of Bohemia, Moravia, grand duke of Lombardy, Venezia, Sturgia, continues to the list of the emperor's 37 titles. The cardinal responded, we know him not. Who goes there? He speaks again, this time using an abbreviated, less ostentatious title, reserved for times of expediency. Again, the cardinal says, we know him not. Who goes there? And the officer, trying a third time, takes away all the titles except for the humblest one and says, we bear the body of Franz Joseph, our brother, a sinner like us all. Doesn't matter what your name is. Doesn't matter what's in or not in your bank account. All that matters is, do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? It will make all the difference in eternity.
Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I'm going to ask our team to come. I've intentionally shortened the sermon even more so than normal today because I want to give us a couple of minutes to ponder where our standing is with God. Friend, if you're worried about why would a good God allow good people to suffering, the answer is actually quite simple. It's because there's none of us who are good. No, not one. We've all turned away from God. We've all gone our own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Why would a good God allow people to go to hell? It's also very simple there too, because the only place outside of the presence of the grace of God is hell. And so in a sense, people who don't want Jesus end up getting exactly what they want. One theologian said that hell is the only place where the gates are locked from the inside, that people don't want to repent. People don't want to hear the words of Christ. And today, I would invite you, not here to scare you, not here to manipulate you, but I would invite you, if you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I have wonderfully good news for you, that if you will turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ the Lord, not only will God hear your prayer, but he will forgive your sin. He will make you like new into his image. And like Lazarus, one day he will give unto you a name. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, the Bible says God would not have any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. Even in the Old Testament, God says that. But he also says that those who believe not are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Friend, it's okay to have questions for God. The problem is when your answers begin to outweigh those questions. And God will one day say to you, just like he said to Job, who are you? The creature doesn't say to the creator, this is the way it's going to be. You're not God, and neither am I. But dear friends, what a blessing it is to know that the God who sees our sin has sent Jesus to die in our place so that we might have life. That, brothers and sisters, is a God of love. Father, today, I pray that you would help us as we come to this serious time. What a time to talk about the heaven that awaits and the judgment to come. Lord, remind us that it won't be the good works that we have done that'll get us in. It'll simply be the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, anyone within the sound of my voice today that doesn't know him, may they come in repentance and faith. For those who do know him, Lord, may you revive in us a great work. Would you help us to be evangelists, sharing your gospel with all who will know. For those who will be knocking on doors, for those who will be inviting friends to come, for Vacation Bible School coming up, I pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Have your way as you will. In the name of Jesus, amen.